Open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 7. The book of Romans chapter 7. We've been in a series for a couple chapters here called Aggressive About Sanctification. And in our series on being aggressive about sanctification, it really climaxes in this last section of Romans chapter 7. Now, I want to read this, but before I do, I want to set up a little bit of a controversy that we're going to address this morning. In fact, I'm not even sure we're going to get to the text itself. Uh, But we need to talk about something that is a a peripheral issue in most contexts, but becomes a major issue in this context. As we're reading this text, Paul uses the first person pronoun, I. Now, the question is, when he says, I... Is he talking about I being a uh, Jew who's apart from the gospel? Is he talking about I as a pre-Christian experience? Or is he talking about I as a Christian struggling with sin? It's very important that you make a determination on that before we finish our study of this text. Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but... I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing that, uh, what, that, that what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, my, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But, on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. If you've been a Christian for very long, you no doubt have had a theological collision with someone. You have had certain beliefs. They have other beliefs, and through conversation, those beliefs have collided. What I mean is that you've had a disagreement with another person about doctrine or theology. It may have happened in the church atrium or a classroom of a church. It could have happened in a pastor's office. It could have occurred at a piano recital or at a soccer game, up in the grandstands or sitting in a seat. Maybe you went to a Christian college and you had disagreements with your classmates or disagreements with your instructors. Disagreements over doctrine have likely happened over dinner with an extended family member, sometimes uh, an immediate family member, standing at the grill with your neighbor 
in today's digital society and social media age, you may have had a disagreement with someone on Twitter or on Facebook or gotten caught up in a debate in the comment section or thread of a blog. If you're a reader, you've probably written question marks in the margin of some books, have you not? Said, I'm not sure about that. If you listen to sermons online, you've probably had a one-way conversation with a podcast. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how to disagree in a godly manner with unbelievers? Do you know how to disagree in a godly manner with believers? Do you know how to disagree with people who don't believe what you believe in a way that honors the Lord? I hope it doesn't surprise you to know that a lot of apostolic ink was spilt on that very subject. How can we disagree with unbelievers, which is really the simpler issue, theologically, that we should have disagreements. How do you disagree in the household of God? How do you disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ who think other ways than you do, think ways other than you do about Scripture? Now, the reason I bring that up is that without question, without debate, without anybody's um, wrestling with the answer to this question, the passage before us is the singular most controversial passage among scholars in the whole New Testament. Oh, there are some kind of curious uh, uh, scriptures that uh, people would, would debate over. But theologians would agree that nothing has been more watershed in, in theological debate than the text before us. And the reason to bring this subject up before we have the sermon uh, in a moment, is, this is kind of a sermon before the sermon, is that it's really important that we talk about disagreements. When we started the book of Romans, I told you at the very beginning, we're going to have a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, detours. It's like you're going on this amazing uh, tour with a, a really good guide on the bus. And he's saying, look at this, look at that. And every now and then he says, hang on, we've got to get off the beaten path and go look at something else. This is one of those off the beaten path moments. Before we talk about this subject, I want us to talk real candidly, almost just as a, a pastoral chat about disagreement. And the reason is I have radical disagreements with some of my best friends about what this passage means. Uh, Some people think it means that Paul was a believer and he's talking about the battle with indwelling sin. Others believe that Paul was talking about his pre-conversion experience because he would never talk about battling sin like that. I'm not sure what you believe about that. I'm not going to take a poll. That would make some curious lunch conversations, wouldn't it? The last section of Romans, as I said, is the most debated paragraph in New Testament studies. It's on the subject of sanctification. And the question is, is Paul reaching back before he gets to the great chapter on walking by the Spirit in chapter 8? Is he reaching back and making sure we understand about his pre-Christian experience in trying to please God with his efforts and with the law? Or is Paul saying that his residual flesh, his unredeemed humanness is still in battle with who he is as a believer. I have some studied convictions about this passage that you will hear about next time. We're not going to get to those today. But I think it's most important to stop for a moment because of the gravity of this text. And can I just be honest with you? Because of the, the volume 
not amount, but sound of debates I've had with some very cherished friends. It's it's fair to say that some of my most ardent debates and some of the the loudest moments uh, with my closest circle of friends have been over this passage. And theologians make a living out of disagreeing and creating doctrinal distinctives. And this is one of those watershed passages. Is it fair to say that you understand Christians disagree about stuff? All you have to do is live long enough and talk to enough people and you're going to realize that not all Christians agree on everything. I have to admit that I've seen this chapter coming since we opened chapter 1, verse 1. I knew it was coming. I knew we would deal with this. And I knew there would be people who agree with the position that I'm going to be taking on this passage, on this section, and people who disagree with it. I recognize that we have a seminary here and the seminary students would be combing their Greek uh, texts and syntactical studies and lexicons to make sure that I'm getting all the aorists and the imperfect and to make sure that I'm getting the, the first person and the, and the third person plural nouns all in line. I knew there would be people who would say, huh, what's even the problem? To boil it all down, as I said, some people think this was a description of Paul when he was, before he was a Christian and others think it's a picture of Paul after he's a Christian and some people don't think it matters. We'll be looking at that more intensely. If you're going to study this over the next few days before we come back, I would encourage you to make your decision based on the word I. When Paul says I, 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 who is he talking about? Answer that question and you've unlocked the way you believe about this passage. Now, in reading the thoughts of scholars on this passage, one thing is clear. There are some very godly, very solid men who I love, admire, and respect strongly, and I mean strongly entrenched on both sides of this debate. Uh, Just last night, I was reading uh, two men back-to-back. One man who is strongly that Paul was unconverted during this section. One man strongly that Paul was converted during this section. And they were actually uh, footnoting each other. And they were kind but pointed that they thought the other one was all wet theologically. What do you do when you have a theological collision with someone who you love, respect, who you admire, and have most agreement with? Well, before we turn to the essence of this debate, I want us to pause to consider this issue this issue of theological disagreement with others, with other believers. There are some times that a text just begs an, an introduction. And this text begs an introduction because no matter where we land in our next study on this passage, I promise you there will be people, if you agree with my exegesis of this passage, who will say, I don't know about that. There will be people in here who say, hang on, Rick, I'm not sure about that. The question isn't whether or not we're going to have disagreements. The question is, how do you disagree theologically? Do you have a pattern? Do you have a plan? Do you have a strategy for disagreeing with people theologically? Do you know how to argue biblically? Do you know how to settle debates biblically? So this is, in essence, a sermon before the sermon. And we won't get much beyond it today. I'm sure you've heard this axiom. This is an old axiom that has been attributed to a lot of people. We're going to look at it for a moment. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. 
Where does that come from? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Philip Schaff, 19th century church historian, calls this, this little axiom the watchword of Christian peacemakers. I like that. It's the watchword of Christian peacemakers. Now, the phrase has an interesting root. Some people trace it back to uh, Augustine. But there's no mention when you do a, a study of Augustine that he ever said or wrote this. It's really amazing, just as a footnote, now that we have all of these, um, these theological works uh, uh, computerized and digitized that you can study. And in a split second, in less than a second, you can tell if a man ever said anything in print. It's a little bit scary. Augustine did not say that, to our knowledge, at least in writing. Martin Luther has been claimed to have said this, and he did, but he was not the first. It comes from an otherwise undistinguished German Lutheran theologian uh, uh, who um, really captured some of Luther's ideas and catechized it, put it in a a phraseology. Um, Rupertus Melendius. He was the first one that we have a, an actual documented uh, case that he said this. It shows up on a tract that he wrote on Christian unity around 1627 during the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648. It was a very bloody time in European history. And all of the war that the people, the multiple wars that people were fighting in that, in that day were all about theology. Let's just say they didn't know how to disagree agreeably. Either agree with me or I'll kill you. That was basically what it came down to. The core reason for those wars was theological tension. The saying found great favor and subsequent writers such as Richard Baxter uh, adopted it. Uh, The Moravian Church of North America adopted it. The Evangelical Presbyterian Church has adopted it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. What does that mean? Well, I like the essence of that maxim. It's it's a good way to start thinking about that. I just think it lets us off the hook a little too quickly. I don't think we can just stay with that maxim. We've got to go a little bit further than that. Just for a moment, we'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know that for about nine verses, the book of 1 Corinthians is really encouraging. And then the rest of the book is a spiritual spanking. Most of what Paul is dealing with is theological disagreements and how to settle those. But look at the first thing that Paul says in the corrective section of the book of 1 Corinthians. After talking about the glory that we share in Christ, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in the Corinthians. Now in verse um, uh, 10, he says this. Now I exhort you, brethren, and stop right there. I want to give you an apostolic exhortation as brothers in the Lord. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty strong accountability. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, Paul just didn't say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer like we do at a rote. If he pulled the name of Jesus in, it was intended to be incredibly piercing accountability. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at this, that you all agree. Literally, you talk the same talk, you say the same things, you believe the same doctrine. 
And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Then he goes on uh, a little example he gives about people who are bragging about who baptized them. I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Peter. I was by Apollos. I was baptized into Christ or by Christ. And he says, what are you talking about? You're really going to attach your, your, um, your, the, the significance of your baptism to who baptized you? Division from their own loyalties. He goes in then to the divisions over the cross in the end of chapter 1, the division over preaching in chapter 2, and then he's off to the races, correction, correction, correction. But his point is this. You cannot just agree to disagree. Isn't that such a pleasant phrase? Let's just agree to disagree, which is raising up the, 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 the white flag of doctrine and saying, ah, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Now, it may be that you have people that you're going to disagree with the rest of your life. And some of those people you're going to spend eternity with. And they with you. Paul says, I want you to make sure that you are making an effort to agree. This is a call to study, basically. This is a call to, look at the text, that you be made complete in the same mind. It's a passive, that you put yourself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to study, to show yourself approved, so that you understand what you believe. You can't just say, this is my tradition. We can't just say, this is what my parents taught. We can't just say, this is what my pastor preached. We have to say, hang on, I want to make great effort and gain toward being of the same mind with people who call themselves my brothers in Christ. So how do we do that? Just for a few minutes this morning, I would like to give you just a short list of how to disagree theologically with others. Now, this will come to bear in the coming weeks. Trust me, this is a, a pre-note, not really a footnote. This is a pre-note to what we're going to be looking at in Romans chapter 7. Here is how I think scriptures tell us to disagree theologically. First, we, this isn't even on the outline. I'm sorry. But this is, we're not even going to get to the outline today. Just as a footnote, this, just a little insight. This was, this was two paragraphs that became 11 pages in my notes. Number one. Watch your attitude. Watch your attitude. If you disagree with someone theologically, the first thing we're called to do is to watch our attitude. Our attitude is paramount. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You know, it's a lot easier to be right than it is to be righteous. You can be right and you can be unrighteous at the same time. Watch your attitude. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse... Well, um, we, could, we could read the whole half of the chapter, but look at verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. In other words, don't get caught up in mindless debates that really don't lead to anyone's holiness. True doctrine has moral implications. Don't just get lost in wrangling about words. We'll come back to verse 15 in a moment. Look down at verse 23. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce 
quarrels. Is that not a great insight into um, people who don't know what they're talking about? It says, foolish and ignorant speculations. How do you come to a foolish and ignorant speculation? You usually come to a foolish, ignorant, ignorant speculation because your convictions are built on someone else's study, not your own. So it's foolish, it's ignorant, it's not studied, it's not well thought through. We'll come back to that. Knowing that they produce arguments, quarrels, fightings. The Lord's slave must not be, the word is argumentative. Do you underline things in your Bible? The Lord's slave does not have the characteristic of being an arguer. He must not be quarrelsome, but look at this juxtaposition. Kind to all. The attitude drives the the debate. Able to teach. Meaning you're trying to promote something for 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 the purpose of learning, not winning a debate. And what about when you're when somebody cheap shots you, when someone's really ungodly toward you, patient when wronged. I love that word long-suffering. My favorite Hebrew word that's just translated uh, over into Greek here, long nose. You just don't squish up your nose. You don't get angry. Long-suffering, patient, enduring. And then it gives us some positive. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. That one phrase could really be the end of our sermon. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If, perhaps, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. This is how far out some people Paul was was debating actually uh, achieved. That they may come to the senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. To do his will. Do you see what's saying there? Wrong theology leads to doing the devil's will. That's pretty intense. Does that motivate you to know what you believe and why you believe it? It should. Doctrine always has moral implications. Right and wrong doctrine. We have to watch our attitude. Have you realized this? God's been doing okay for a long time without our winning a debate. You think that the Trinity in an inner discussion of the Godhead and the angels are having councils up there and saying, boy, I hope that person really wins this argument. If they do, what, a, what an advancement for the gospel that will be. It's not going on at all. Hot-headed screams of insecurity. Being a hot-headed theologian just screams that you're not really secure in what you believe or in trust in the Lord. I'm saying that because I have been a hot-headed theologian many times. It boasts of a lack of confidence and trust in God. Watch your attitude. Attitude is paramount. A gentle answer turns away wrath. When someone's a vagus nerve has fired and their adrenaline is pumping and they are looking at you and they're spitting mad, literally, it's really hard to say, oh, I see your point and want to be one to this point because it's made you like this and I want to be like that. It's not how it works. The Lord's servant's not quarrelsome. Smiles. Confident. Let's talk. Let's teach. Let's explore. Let's study. Number two. Make the right assessment. Watch your attitude, number two. Make the right assessment. 
Now, assessment is critical here, and this is what's going to have specific bearing on our study of Romans chapter 7. Assessment is critical as to the importance of the issue. Super important. Dr. Moeller, Al Moeller writes this. Today's Christian faces the daunting task of strategizing which Christian doctrines and theological issues are to be given the highest priority in terms of our contemporary context. Do you understand that? Let me read that again. Today's Christian faces the daunting task of strategizing which Christian doctrines and theological issues are to be given the highest priority in terms of our contemporary context. This applies to both public defense of Christianity in the face of secular challenges and the internal responsibility of dealing with doctrinal disagreements. Neither is an easy task. But theological seriousness and maturity demand that we consider doctrinal issues in terms of their relative importance. Not their importance, their relative importance. How important is it in this context? I'll explain that in a moment. God's truth is to be defended at every point and in every detail. But responsible Christians must determine which issues deserve first rank attention in a time of theological crisis, end quote. What he's saying is, do you understand what's essential and what's debatable? He goes on in, I think, a very helpful way to distinguish first, second, and third degree order issues. There are first degree issues, second degree issues, third degree issues. Let me explain. First degree, uh, uh, first level rather, theological issues would, would be doctrines that are most central and essential to the Christian faith. The facts of Jesus' life, the facts of his bodily death and his bodily resurrection. The theology that attends those facts. The gospel facts themselves. The trinity, the deity, the full humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone and grace alone through Christ alone. The authority of the Bible. Those are not negotiable issues. If we disagree on those issues, it's possible that we're not having a disagreement between believers. It's possible we're having a disagreement between a believer and an unbeliever. Those are first degree die on the hill issues as it were. Then there's second order issues he talks about. Mode and meaning of baptism. I'm a strong believer's baptism proponent theologian. I believe that baptism comes after you are saved. It is crystal clear in the Bible. I have very good friends who believe that baptizing a baby is okay. We've had long and lengthy and spirited debates about this. But I'm pretty sure that in heaven, one of us will be right. One of us will be wrong and it won't matter. That we're both redeemed. It's a second degree issue. We can stand together on first degree doctrines, but we are apart on some of these second degree. It will prevent probably fellowship and even shared leadership in a local church, but we may be able to speak at the same conference together. It's just a different. Third order uh, divisions or disagreements are, are very interesting. Muller talks about these and he says that this is, these are doctrines over which Christians may disagree and remain in close fellowship, even with the same local congregation. For example, eschatology. 
You know, are you a pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture? Probably not going to affect your membership at Mission Road Bible Church. Jesus is going to return, we have to all agree. When he's going to return, we may have some disagreements on. But we can stand together on what's important. So Muller writes this, quote, First order issues determine Christian identity and integrity. Second order issues determine ecclesiology, how we do the church. That's why we have different denominations, different churches. Have you ever stopped to realize the fact that you're Unless you've achieved perfection, something in your theology is wrong. I know you believe all of your theology, and you should. But do you think you're going to get to heaven with no corrections? Lord, here's my theology. And he's going to say, 100% smiley face, welcome into the joy of your master. Sometimes I wonder if that, how, where my grade will be on how, how accurate I was. And the accuracy has to come from studying the scriptures. I would put our text here in the third degree category. In other words, no matter what we decide in Romans 7, you're probably going to be able to sit uh, in church with each other. And it's not going to have that much of a, an impact on how you fellowship. We have to be careful, though, not to fall into either of two extremes. Now, I, want, I just want to briefly mention these. There are two extremes you have to be aware of. I have to be mindful of as I'm studying. First is fundamentalism. Second is liberalism. Fundamentalism raises everything to a first-degree matter. Everything matters. Even your hair length matters. It's in Maccabees somewhere, but everything matters. Liberalism says... I mean, fundamentalism raises everything to first degree. Liberalism raises everything to third degree. It doesn't matter. Do you like Jesus? I do too. We can fellowship together forever. That's about as deep as it gets. Watch your heart that you don't elevate non-essentials to first essentials and that you don't de-elevate or de-escalate what's really important to non-important. A third Remain teachable to God's word. If we're going to disagree on doctrinal issues, you have to remain teachable to or by God's word. Are you committed to being a theological student? Are you ready for this? On everything? Or do you, do you approach things a lot like I do intuitively? It's, well, I've got that down. I'm going to go over other things. And you kind of, yeah, I figured that out at one point. So I'm just going to set that aside. I, want, I don't need to address that again. One of the things we're doing in our theology for breakfast and studying uh, systematic theology is it's making me go back and reevaluate all the moorings, all the underpinnings of everything I believe. It's been so refreshing to go back and say, oh, that, now I remember why I believe that. If you're still in 2 Timothy, go back up to verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. God's approval depends on our efforts extended toward accurately handling what he said. We're to study to show ourselves approved. We're to search the scriptures as the noble Bereans did. As I said earlier, one of the great temptations we all face with respect to doctrine is to lean on the study of others without doing our own homework. Well, this is what R.C. Sproul said. This is what John MacArthur said. This is what Calvin and Zwingli said. This is what Luther said. This is what you fill in the blank. It's important to know what these men said, but it's more important that we know what God 
said. Yes, it's okay to use other studies, but not at the expense of our own. Let's just take the most basic first degree issue that we all have to have some traction with, the the deity of Christ. If you live in America long enough, you will get that on your door, right? A couple of guys in white shirts, very unstylish ties will show up. And they will talk to you about the fact that your view of Jesus Christ is wrong because you don't have the right Bible, which they would be glad to provide you. Have you had these guys at your door? Yeah, I always like to keep them in my, my house as long as possible. It keeps them from the neighbors. Until they say, what, what do you do for a living? And then it's kind of over. <laughs> do you know how to defend personally, intensely, the deity of Jesus Christ with no notes, with nobody whispering in your ear, can you theologically, biblically, with an open Bible, can you prove to someone that Jesus was fully God and truly human? Can you? How about this? Can you prove to someone that salvation is not by works, not by, not by any effort, any human achievement. Can you, with an open Bible and no notes, tell someone that there's a trinity? I think sometimes we have deferred some of these first order theological convictions to the fact that, well, if my pastor or great theologians believe this, of course I do. Can you prove that? And not just prove it. Let's go one more. Can you enjoy that doctrine? Because you've studied it yourself. Remain teachable by God's word. Now, let me give you a little little insight that if you've been studying for very long, you know. If you're committed to studying God's word, you will have and experience corrections in theology and theological points that you did not see coming. Have you ever had that happen? Um, that's okay. Are we teachable according to God's word? If you say, boy, this is, I don't know if I've made a good conclusion here. That, that's why we have the church. Elders, overseers, men who've uh, devoted their lives to study. Let's press that against scholarship, but let's find those questions through personal study. Are you teachable? I remember where I was sitting. Um, you know, we're going to get a little ahead for a second into Romans chapter 9. But I remember where I was sitting my first year of seminary, out on the, um, the little uh, curb of the, the, the um, church, there was no seminary building when I was there at Masters in, in the ancient days. And I was challenged on my view of man's sovereignty with respect to salvation. Now, I didn't even, we were, this wasn't the Calvinism debate. It was just, do you really believe that man is morally neutral and can choose God or can reject God. And I want to embarrassingly tell you that for, the, for about 10 minutes, I, I waxed the elephant on that issue. Absolutely. God has given, the greatest gift God has given man is free will. I remember saying that. Just looking for lightning right now. And this guy, I remember, his name's Rick. I remember him to this day. Was an example of this passage. 
And he graciously and patiently and slowly and smilingly just kept not telling me things, but asking me questions. And the more questions that I asked, the more confused answered, the more confused I got. And finally, I had to go home that night and say, I don't think I know what I believe about this. I, I thought I knew what I believed about this. But what I believed about this is not what the Bible says about this. And that was a problem. All of us need to be teachable to what God's word says. Number four. This is the last one for this week. This is a quotation mark, but let's call it this. Check the jersey colors. I mean that. Check the jersey colors. When I was... When I played football before everyone else grew, and I didn't, um, in Little League, um, I remember the, um, we would have a fumble drill. Men, you remember the fumble drill? Get two lines, they'd throw the, throw the football, and then you'd fight over the, the ball. And, and then we'd do it with two people, and you know, we would have those, those net jersey, uh, red or yellow distinguishing um, uh, parts that would get you, uh, it told who, who's on what side, say it that way, two, then four, then six, and then, then it became really interesting because you'd hear guys fighting over the ball saying, same team, same team, and you're the same guys with the same jersey fighting over the same ball. Be careful in how we fight. If If you are talking with a Christian brother or sister, that should majorly dictate how you talk about these things over which we disagree. As I said, you're going to spend eternity with them. Maybe you could spend 10 minutes with them now. We will be spending eternity with people that we disagree with now. We'll all agree then. We all have theology to be corrected. We have to be humble about that while at the same time having stern and biblically Leveraged convictions. The issue is to keep the main issue as the main issue. The main issue is the gospel. Now, if we understand that, that doesn't lessen the secondary and third, uh, third tertiary, on and on issues. It elevates them because we know how to handle them, how to disseminate them. We're very drawn out here at Mission Row. We have a multiple page doctrinal statement, multiple page what we teach statement. We're not going to back off of that. But we do understand that there are brothers and sisters who don't go here, who don't believe every secondary and third level issue that are our brothers and sisters, right? I often think in these, these, uh, on this issue with John 14 where Jesus tells his, his disciples, they, the world will know that you are mine when you love one another. You can love one another without agreeing wholeheartedly with one another. How we fight our fights is very important. You say, why bring all this up? Because, as I said in the beginning, I have seen more fights with people who I agree most with over Romans chapter 7 than any other passage in the Bible. I mean, people have blown emotional gaskets over this thing. So the question is, was Paul saved? Or was Paul unconverted? When he's giving his first person narrative in Romans chapter 7. Do you have a conviction on that? Do you know? Uh, I hope so. 
do you want to develop one together? I hope so. Because that's what we're going to study in our next, our next study. As I said, these were a couple of thoughts that expanded. There, I have great concern on both ends of the spectrum of disagreement, especially with the younger generation, that we can fall off into fundamentalism or into liberalism. Everything's important. Therefore, if you can't cross every T and dot every I like I am, you are outside of my fellowship. That's wrong. But saying that nothing is important and we all love Jesus and we don't need to study doctrine, that's wrong. Are you ready for this? The middle is not the right place either. You say, where are we supposed to be? We should have well-studied convictions that are rooted in good biblical hermeneutics with applications and implications that are clearly drawn as a straight line from what we do to what we believe. And then when people disagree with us, we need to know how to disagree in a way that's biblical. We don't disagree agreeably. We disagree biblically. How do you do that? Look at Philippians chapter 2. The theme of Philippians is sometimes called joy. It's really unity. Paul says, verse 1 of chapter 2, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, if, if you're trying a little bit, if there's any shriveled up grape on the vine, if you're trying to do biblical Christianity, then make my joy, this is how you make a pastor happy, complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. How in the world can you accomplish that? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, how you think about yourself in this context, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he gives the great example of Jesus, who is that model. So in the moment of theological debate, theological controversy, theological disagreement, is your mind on winning the argument or loving the person? It's really what it comes down to. You don't have to compromise your, your beliefs or your doctrine. But it's about the attitude of seeing this person as more important than yourself. I wonder how much traction we could get theologically if we applied this attitude. If we could argue over the Bible on the same side of the table. Not argue across the table using the Bible as a tug of war rope. If we could really open our eyes and study to show ourselves approved unto God. Please don't hear me say we should lower our biblical convictions. This should elevate our biblical convictions. And help us to help others to those convictions if indeed they are biblical. So with that, was Paul saved or not? You're going to have to come back next time and find out. Will you bow your heads? Will you bow your heads, please? Father, this is a um, subject that's so 
close to my own life and experience, I have failed so many times and so miserably by trying to win an argument rather than please your son. So cause us here at Mission Road to have deep, abiding, strong, robust biblical theology. And also to not be argumentative, to be kind, tender-hearted, gracious, winsome. Show us how to disagree biblically and to study biblically. Father, we want to be workmen who show ourselves approved to you, who will never be ashamed because we've handled your truth accurately. Thank you for this precious body that has demonstrated so many ways how they study to show themselves approved. Lord, give us, give us stronger convictions and more gracious attitudes. In Jesus' name, amen.